a disaster planning and prevention from either Bill Gates talk or the WHO website would have cost the entire world probably less than a million dollars. Today's talk has been dubbed Medical Think Tank Discussion. Um, opening our talk today is fellow bootcamp alumni, Wasim Mohideen. Wasim is a physician. He's the co-founder of TechMed, India's first hospital lab management company. TechMed has established more than 80 labs across India, Sri Lanka, and Nigeria. Wasim began working on his next venture, a digital health platform that he aims to launch by the end of 2020. Wasim has extensive medical qualifications and continues to practice preventative and wellness medicine. Thank you so much for being with us, Wasim, and the floor is yours. Thank you, Nancy. Uh, am I audible and clear? Can I go in? Okay, so uh, from, from what I spoke to Nancy, uh, thought we could just do a runaround on uh, what this whole COVID is and, and the pandemic. And some of my experience uh, in dealing with smaller level epidemics uh, earlier and some of the lapses uh, lapses that saw in this and kind of understand uh, the pandemics beyond, from, beyond the medical perspective. Anytime we talk about pandemics uh, and healthcare in general is rarely contained to healthcare. There is a lot of economic well, there's a lot of politics, uh, there's a lot of uh, psychology involved. We thought uh, we could touch upon each of them and kind of lay the ground for, uh, for discussion on, on what uh, could have been done better and how we could get prepared for the next epidemic. A lot of what I'm saying is not set in stone. Uh, there are a lot of things we are yet to learn about the virus itself, but we can at the same time not lose track on what we already know and why don't we build on that. So this is what I plan to cover. Uh, the pandemic itself, the people in the pandemic, uh, for us to understand how people uh, react differently and how it is similar uh, or differently staged uh, with different healthcare or non-healthcare problems in the world right now. Uh, then the economic loss of the carelessness, the role of the whole global and local issue, how we can expand that. And uh, a very important topic uh, which I thought is uh, communicable and non uh, and how something like a pandemic meeting point and uh, finish the role of data. I'll try and be quick. So lessons for, from the pandemic, uh, I'm sure by this time, a lot of you would have read about all the pandemics, what has been out there in the media, from who, from all the speeches that have been going around, Spanish flu, MERS, influenza, and COVID. The COVID itself, we don't know a lot. The mortality rates are still evolving. We know it's contagious. How contagious? It is influenza, something that's been around since donkey's year, extremely contagious. While we say coronavirus right now, all of these are forms of coronavirus. And so in that entire thread of, of trying to get prepared for the corona, for this epidemic, I think we picked up some of the commonalities and forgot to pick up some of the commonalities. And that's something that happens. So this, the diamond princess paradox. Now, if you look at such an extremely contagious The only contained data that we have right now is probably from the diamond, the, the cruise ship. There were about 3,500 people inside. 
in an extremely close setup. We are talking about social distancing and everything. But even before people knew they had symptoms, when people were going around touching surfaces, not necessarily practicing either hand hygiene or uh, social distancing. Why is it that such a contagious disease did not infect everybody? About 25% of people in very, very close quarters with very high access to fomites. Fomites are, for those who don't know, fomites are objects that pass on infection. Why didn't that happen? And there were only about eight deaths. And considering that this particular uh, uh, cruise ship wasn't necessarily full of youngsters, uh, and considering that the average uh, age of Italy was about 45, uh, the country which is probably the most ravaged, uh, followed by Spain. This, I think, the Diamond Princess itself can give us some answers and uh, some questions that we, we can ask further. The worldwide, it's, we have crossed a million uh, uh, infections. Uh, obviously, we don't know the entire population. We can estimate to be about 7 billion. Uh, the number of deaths are, are going higher. But why is it that it didn't happen in the diamond? Yes. Next slide. So this is something that I think we need to understand, is that pandemics, like I said, there are politics. There is common sense involved. Sometimes the lack of common sense. And like some wise dude said, every crisis presents an opportunity. And people are going to look for that opportunity. And that's something that I think while we're designing solutions, we need to understand that this crisis that presents an opportunity, presents an opportunity at multiple levels. It presents opportunities for entrepreneurs. It presents opportunities for medical device manufacturers to come up with newer things. And I, I had a call with somebody in the US today who's trying to design uh, a device that can, that can completely distance the doctor from the patients and do it entirely remotely. So this does present an opportunity, but it also presents opportunities to politicians to either cement their power or for new politicians to look for an opportunity to come to power. And when you're starting to look at pandemics from the view of economics, politics, behavioral sciences, and sometimes we can lose touch with common. And that's something that is unfortunate because when you look at preventable problems in such large scale issues, the one thing that we need to hold together is our common sense. But it does happen. A simple example is how the uh, I, I remember even when I had posted the uh, a photo of myself with uh, with a mask, somebody had written down saying that the mask will not uh, prevent you from getting the disease. I, today, I think we realize that that's not true. What modern science has been looking for is trying to look for evidence that the mask will prevent infection. But during this time, what might have worked better is to look for evidence to the contrary. Is a mask dangerous? Now, why is that? Uh, important because by that time, the world had known that this was a coronavirus, which means that the primary properties of the coronavirus is not going to change. Your influenza is a coronavirus. Your common cold is a coronavirus. Your SARS, your MERS, they're all coronavirus. But because of their mutation, a certain kind of, and throughout history, we've seen that with the mutation, what affects the coronavirus is the infectious rate and the mortality. The Spanish flu, for example, killed younger people more than it did older people, but it happened in a completely different era. The SARS and everything else had very, very similar characters. Every time you look at the East Asian, where these masks are used rather common, the infection rate is low. Now, that is one area of common we let loose, simply because maybe 
the leadership was worried about lack of mass, the shortage that healthcare industry will face. There were other problems that were focused, which kind of, I think we let lose some of the common sense. And this is a simple, small example of how we know that the coronavirus spreads in a particular way, and we still didn't step in to stop when we realized that the incubation period was longer. So the protection uh, is something that I spoke about. The viral load is again an important area that we know from uh, history. And if you look even now, the Royal College of uh, Practitioners, where I'm a member of, we have uh, the College of Evidence-Based Medicine, uh, which is led by the Oxford University. And that's one of the questions that was asked was, who is affected more, the youngsters, the elders? A very simple concept that most doctors would be aware of is that the more the viral load, the higher your chance of succumbing to the virus. So why some of the times test becomes negative is if you don't have sufficient viral load in your, in your body. Now, while typically elders or people with uh, comorbid conditions need lesser viral load to get affected more because their immunity is not as good, the questions as to why youngsters are being affected is if some of them have a very high viral load, that's something that's been happening to the healthcare worker. Now, instead of a mass communication, I'll come to that when I talk about people, is if the communication was more personalized, I think the impact would have been a lot lesser. The time delay is very, very surprising because usually it is the Western countries that come in first and, and fight it out. But this time, it somehow, somewhere, it, that didn't happen. The first case in India was uh, end of January. And from the first week of February, India had banned any Chinese national from entering the country without being quarantined. But up to the middle of March, I think first, second week of March, despite the number of infections in uh, Europe, uh, the lockdowns or the screenings were not happening. And that was very surprising because, again, we know what the coronavirus is. While the death rates and the mortalities change, when something like a coronavirus starts to spread, we know that it's very fast and it needed to be a situation where better safe than sorry. Something went wrong in, in, in Europe and America. And why I say that is the index patient in India was from Wuhan. The first patient in India who spread it in India was from Wuhan. But yesterday's data suggests that more than 40 countries, the index patients were not from China, but were from Europe. And that might be true for America. We don't have the data yet. So the time delay is something that is very surprising. And I don't have an answer as to why things went the way it went. Obviously, when we're dealing with pandemics, we're dealing with people. Well, this is not to call anybody names, but I'm just from an understanding, I'm trying to group all of us into, into three main categories. Some of us who are fearful, and this is important when you start asking questions like, why don't they get it? You know, these are natural questions that some of us have. But we need to realize that a pandemic is one area that puts us into probably into three, maybe more. But the most people who go into the safety are the ones who are fearful of either getting the infection or spreading the infection. And I think that's very clear that if you're scared of getting it or if you're scared of spreading it to your near dear ones or to the society, itself, we are going to follow the lockdown order. And the fearful people are worried about the ignorant and the arrogant as to why don't they get it? Now, take the COVID out for a minute and look at something something else. Could be anything. Could be veganism or could be climate change. And then you'll realize that some of us who are fearful in the, in the current pandemic, we actually fall into the category of being ignorant or arrogant for a different pandemic. It may not be an infectious pandemic. 
could be a different world problem. So somebody who's fearful about climate change would be worrying about us and wondering why don't these people get it. And all of this boils down to Maslow's hierarchy of needs. The first needs, the bottom most triangle in the Maslow's hierarchy is food, clothing and shelter. So if food, clothing and shelter are not taken care of in a, in a pandemic situation, people are not going to be worried about the security. They're going to go scrambling for the basic necessities, what they deem basic. And then the next step of security, if they feel, that's where the arrogant, uh, the ignorant comes in, where they are not aware of this threat to their security. The third category, the arrogant comes in when they feel that, yes, there is something happening around, but it's not going to affect me. So during pandemics and disaster planning, we need to look at where people are going to scramble to. And it, this is going to vary from country to country, which I will come my, in, in another slide. And, and therefore, how people are going to react, uh, people are going to react. The World Economic Forum has uh, kind of estimated what the economic loss is going to be. A week ago, it was $1 trillion. Now it's $2 trillion. Let's hope it doesn't become $4 and $6 trillion in the coming week. Just a food for thought is that a disaster planning and prevention from either Bill Gates' talk or the WHO website would have cost the entire world probably less than a million dollars. You're not going to be able to fight off everything, but the disaster preparedness plan was only about a million dollars or more. Coming to the amount of loss that we've had, maybe if we didn't cut our budget so much, maybe even if it was not a million dollars, maybe even if it was $10 million, the, the effort would have been worth it, right? This is another problem, is that sometimes this whole herd mentality also happens at power centers because suddenly everybody is scared. While we need to think global, the local issues are very, very different. What applies to India may not apply to the US. In fact, India very surprisingly took a very strong stand to lock down the country for the results are showing because the curve is flattened slightly. But what's important is that in the last 10, 11 days that we've uh, been locked down, the administration was able to get about 17,000 beds. So it's a double attack. One, you're flattening the curve itself, but also we bought time to build the capacity of the healthcare system. Delhi, one of the states in India, has now announced that we have not yet reached the stage three, which is community transmission. But if we do get there, we are reasonably prepared. If you look at the WHO site, and you can go and take a countrywide preparedness uh, course in the WHO, at the WHO website itself, completely online. And it tells you there's a stark difference between the guidelines that the WHO has in its infection and prevention control IPC program to what is actually there in all of our countries. It was very surprising because these guidelines were always there. And somewhere, we probably got a little too distracted with non-communicable diseases as the killer, saying that diabetes is the killer, hypertension is the killer, cardiac diseases are the killers, cancer is the killer. Uh, in that mode, we completely forgot about the pandemics like this. I'm very focused on preventive medicine. What we did was, for our patients, we did something very, very simple. We have data of our patients. We know how many of them have some forms of immunosuppression, have asked, which could predispose them to a disease like this. Now, if you look at it, most of us have, have done it or are already doing it for our patients when it comes to the annual flu shot. Now, somebody who says that if you're uh, underestimating the COVID when you compare it to the flu, I think is the other way around. We are underestimating the common flu compared to the corona. So every year, for patients who are at very high risk, 
we actually put them through an influenza vaccine. Every five years, we put them through a pneumonia vaccine. And that data is already available with us. And I'm sure it's available in every country. What if, and this is an open question, what if something small that we did for a very small subset of patients, almost I think 15, 16% of our patients who we had data on what predisposes them to infections, especially to something like this, that they need to be careful. Then suddenly we weren't going on top of the world and shouting, hey, there's a coronavirus, everybody be careful. But individual patients were told, hey, you are on immunosuppression. You've been on this for the last year for whatever reason. You are at risk. Tell your kids to be careful. They give it to you. And sometimes uh, uh, some of our patients actually went back and thanked us that some of their kids avoided travel because they knew. So this is an area where, yes, non-communicable diseases and the disease, communicable diseases meet. But you can use the data that we have from the patients of NCD, non-communicable disease, and use them to modify or stratify the risk for communicable. And when you start doing that, natural things like flattening of the curve, healthcare preparedness, everything automatically. And this is something where it is patient versus community. And remember when we are going and talking from the top of our lungs, something's going to hit you. We are going to have all three sets of people. We are going to have the fearful guys who are going to say, oh, wow, something's going to happen. Right. There are going to be people who like couldn't hear you. And there are going to be people like, ah, it's not going to affect me. But the minute it is customized uh, and you're able to stratify the risk and communicate that, uh, compliance is going to be a lot better. So uh, in a lot of ways, I think digital health is, uh, is the way forward because we need to be able to leverage on existing data. And uh, in a lot of ways, that's the data that we already have. We may not be able to control what happens at the political side, but I think if we leave that aside and if, if most of us are able to find solutions uh, at the community level uh, and when multiple communities come together, we would be able to fight this because we need to remember that this is not going away. It's not something that's going to get eradicated tomorrow. In a pandemic like this, something where which spreads as fast as this does, uh, the only hope is to not overwhelm the health system. And uh, that is something uh, the WHO knew early on, had warned early on. They declared it a pandemic much later, but declared it as a global healthcare problem much earlier. So that is the time that the queue should have been taken. Uh, some countries did, even though we do say that in, even in India, we are late and we should have shut international trans flights on the 4th or 5th. I think data models show that if we had uh, shut the borders on the 5th, this economy wouldn't have taken a hit because the entire, in, nothing would have stopped inside the country, just would have been outside. Uh, and we had the data for that. Uh, maybe we weren't prepared in the way Bill Gates says that we want, but we did have sufficient data for it to, uh, for us to, prepare. but now that it's over, uh, it's important that uh, start getting prepared for the next, next pandemic, because it's not a question of if, only a question of when. It is going to happen. SARS happened, MERS happened, Ebola, Nipah, they are happening. We can't right away communicable diseases, infections, thinking that in advanced countries, we are now very advanced going uh we are only going to be affected by the lifestyle disease no uh infectious diseases are a real risk. uh so this is something that we've done like i said uh, we stratified our patient patient and uh, that i think helped we were then able to understand what kind we need to communicate and therefore we were able to communicate specifically to the fearful specifically to the ignorant um and hopefully the message went to the arrogant wherein then they realized that, hey, I can get affected. Spoke about viral load and said that, 
yes, if you go out today, you may not get affected. But if 10 people hit you with the virus, then you're not immune anymore. And suddenly that changed the behavior. So yes, healthcare is uh, affected in uh, a pandemic, but we also need to look at behavioral science, economics, politics. That's, that's, that's all I have. Open to questions. And I think we can throw the floor. to this. You could refute whatever I said. Uh, if you have something different, because we, this is an evolving issue. Things are changing by the day. Thanks so much, Wasim. Uh, so what I wanted to, to ask about was what about India's reaction was so good? You said that they were a little bit later than they could have been, but it does seem like um, like a lot of people thought that India would be struggling a lot harder with it, and India seems to be managing relatively well so far, at least as I understand it. Right. So uh, I think from the SARS uh, issue, uh, India learned that, uh, and we also had one or two issues with Nipah uh, virus, where we lost about 10 healthcare workers. So what they realized very quickly was, we need to filter out anybody coming in from the epicenter, prevent it at the stage one. So what we did first was, uh, while international flights are banned now, from the first week of February, uh, flights from China were compl- uh, visas for Chinese nationals completely uh, withdrawn. So while we took a long time to ban international, from the epicenter itself, the flights were banned. And from the second week of February, everybody who flew in from China was temperature uh, and uh, they were asked to quarantine them. It's only after the European flights started coming in and somewhere in, uh, somewhere in March that uh, things went a little haywire. Uh, and then this religious group that uh, had a meeting uh, had a lot of infected participants coming from Southeast. So I think despite where India is, uh, realizing that we don't have the healthcare system to handle a crisis, they took the preventative route that kind of worked. Uh, we know how it is right now. But what we've done is we've bought time. And in this time, uh, there is a mass production of ventilators. We've already added 17,000 beds to the uh, healthcare capacity. So it's taken the preventative route, first step. And now that we know that we can't fight this and this is going to enter at some stage or the other, we just bought time. And how do you think we go about, like, you know, a year from now, people will ideally, largely COVID will no longer be a major pandemic, but maybe 10 years from now, people will start to again think about, oh, you know, it wasn't that big a deal. We don't need to be as cautious anymore you know, the next Trump or whatever will fire the pandemic team? Like, how do we keep sort of awareness of, as you said, there is going to be a next one. There's no ifs or buts. It is going to happen. So how how do you think we go about maintaining awareness and sort of vigilance, if you will, on this sort of topic? If we are lucky and the next one is also a kind of a coronavirus, a mutated coronavirus, then uh, we will probably be better uh, suited and hopefully we'll learn lessons. But that's the million dollar question. Is it going to be a mutated version of coronavirus or is it going to be some other bacteria, some other superbug where you don't have, at least in coronavirus, you know that the mortality is not much. Uh, Yes, it is high, but it's not as. So preparedness, I think, needs to be the, the, the WHO's preparedness for healthcare has to obviously uh, percolate to the, to the bottom, but that's easier said than done is. So if it's going to be another virus that spreads like this, we might be better prepared. But if it's a superbug of some kind, 
which is resistant to antibiotics, then I think prayer is the only thing to believe in God. A little bit of a, a scary answer, but I guess that's the thing we have to always be aware of, right? That this is actually a relatively good scenario compared to what it could be. Correct. And so that's, that's when it comes down to how we respond as, as a human race. Uh, are we going to suddenly just say that, no, just wash your hands off or do normal things like the things that we are doing? Somewhere all of this is related. Your global warming, your uh, climate change, all of these are interrelated in some form. And I think we know the links very minimally, but we are trying to establish the entire link as kind of proof. But that's where this is going to come from because with new climate change, we're going to virus bacteria are dead. Two ways have been happening for so so it's it's a, going to be a bigger problem to so how we identify these uh, pandemics sooner than later and I think the rest of the world is a little surprised with the Americas and the European response uh, so that that is I think is not going to go away anytime soon. Uh, but like I said there is so much more at stake there is politics at stake. Uh, sometimes you don't want the cure to be worse than the disease and can lead that way. Yeah, I absolutely think that a lot of the world is quite surprised by Europe and America's sort of mishandling of the situation. Andrew, you had a question? You might need to unmute yourself. I might just ask it if he's having a little bit of mic trouble. Uh, so Andrew just asked, what else can we do right now to mitigate the economic impact where we are? That's a tough question to answer because uh, it's going to be like triage. And when it comes to triage, I think as doctors in war, we are trained to at some point let go and I'm going to put my where I can save the maximum number. During our medical college, medical, we are trained that at that point, you have to just let go. But can you do that with economy? Uh, I don't know whether we've had, we do have, have this on a day-to-day basis, right? Economically, everybody at some point of time, somebody else's welfare is being sacrificed for somebody. But the minute it comes to death in large scale, the United Kingdom's response saying that we will go in for a herd immunity is probably the best thing to do from an economic that in India, we would slowly have a staggered exit from the lockdown. Say that simultaneously, let me build the healthcare. Yes, we lost the bus, we missed the bus. But can we quickly build up the uh, capacity to treat and let the herd immunity develop so that you're not spending too many dollars trying to test everybody who's going to be paused, but rather focus on treating people who need, who need the treatment. That is the single best way to revive the economy. But is anybody going to have the guts to do that? Considering what has already happened and the blame is already there. There's election year in America. Trump going to take that tough call and say, going to affect my rating. It's going to affect all of this. Should I then weigh that? Let me build capacity simultaneously, reduce preventable deaths as much as possible. Open up the... Because either ways, if you look at it, uh, it's something like, if I have to give an analogy, Imagine somebody who's extremely obese, who's been asked to run on the treadmill. Yes, you may reduce your cardiac risk a few percentage points, but in five years, you're going to end up with knee arthritis. You're just shifting the problem to the other end. Especially in countries like India, if a million people lose their job, there are going to be 500,000 reasons. Now, is that preventable? It is. But do you want to prevent that 500,000 suicides or uh, do we need to prevent 300,000 deaths due to... These are tough questions. 
the best way i think from an economy and this for some point and that timing is going to be very important i think in india we have a reasonable idea we have 11 12 more days before the lockdown starts to ease not not unlocked off but starts to ease that tipping point i don't have data for the us but at some point looking at america's data right now with about 250000 people affected uh, but a very small death rate it is apparent that more people are going to need care uh, and sooner or later because there are 250000 already in and rate at which this virus spreads it's a matter of time before it becomes 2.5 million but are 2.5 million people going to need help may not be that's the timing call that everybody need to take and restart the economy slowly because otherwise we're going to have much more repercussions than the than the than the virus but who's going to do it yeah absolutely and it doesn't it isn't unless it's the leader of a country it isn't even a single person that needs to do it it's many people right oh yes but if the leadership is strong enough in india i think right now the leadership is strong enough to say that 21 days i will open up slowly but is that doable in the in, in america i don't know with the political structure the lies and all of that for each yeah. country to look at but somebody has but who's going to who's going to take that risk if it backfires they're going to lose their politics yeah absolutely and especially people politicians having a sort of shorter viewpoint where they're like oh this is an election year you need to focus on getting as many votes as possible they might not take those tough stances out of fear exactly now uh andrews added asking about herd immunity that it makes sense but at what cost to the people who die as a result they are someone's brother sister father mother aunt uncle so on sorry i didn't get the question uh asking about herd immunity so for a short time uh uh Boris Johnson here in the UK was saying that we should encourage herd immunity have everyone not locked down and try and get over it quickly as possible now he backtracked very quickly but as a potential solution in quotes what do you think of that honestly that was the best approach but there are lots of ifs and buts to it again it boils down to politics everything if you are able to simultaneously build your healthcare capacity and we know that with the data that we have i think there is sufficient data to say that this will come and go large population people but in india for example we have 1.3 billion people and if the virus hits 50% about 5% need uh, critical care we don't have the beds but in in countries like the united kingdom which is nhs driven public uh, health driven he had the guts say that at that point because i think he knew that if it was done correctly and if they could fast track a vaccine in about 12 months the herd immunity would have would have played out well and he would have he could have claimed that he found the balance between preventable deaths and the economic damage but i think the pressure from all over start started to build and and he started having pressure that he wasn't doing enough they weren't testing enough so it's uh for a, this is like how our influenza works uh, all of us do have herd immunity and now that we have a vaccine uh, we've built that immunity for this the problem is how it's going to overwhelm your healthcare system initially that's the only thing remember that all of this lockdown are not going to eradicate only flattening getting the healthcare system so surely in our in united kingdom they could do it uh, i have because my training in uh, 
the Royal College, I have an understanding of how the healthcare system works. But I'm not so sure that it would have worked in America with entirely private or in India, which uh, which is a fragmented health. Surely, if uh, assuming Canada is very similar to the national health uh, care in uh, England, it might have worked. But not every country can do it. So that's why the thing Global Act Local comes in. Unfortunately, Boris Johnson couldn't go through with that. And with the rate of infection going, did. But even they don't have a very high death rate. Just like America has many infections because they're testing a lot more people, but uh, the death rate's considerably lower compared to Italy. Thank you. Uh, I'm going to mispronounce this name. Uh, Sad Tiao uh, asked the question, Hi, thank you for the comprehensive talk. How do you expect the medical field and training to adapt slash improve from the crisis in future, especially if there are more outbreaks expected? So, uh, somewhere I think I'll have to reiterate that treatment here not the issue. We are giving only supportive treatment, even now, uh, like we do for most end-stage uh, severe ac- acute respiratory diseases. We are giving, so from a medical training point, there is nothing really that change because once it comes down to, if you look at an infectious disease, you need to give them antibiotics, cure them and hope that they go away. But while the body is doing its work, while the uh, antibiotics work, you need to support the body Till it's able to fight. So that basic principle is not good. But I think doctors, to be mentally prepared uh, during training, the whole concept of triage comes in only in cases of war or in disaster. But I don't think we are ever prepared for disaster this scale. Suddenly looking at every day for a, for a couple of months, looking at 20 patients walking in every hour and you have to decide who to give this. That can be mentally exhausting. And it is. Uh, to kind of play God and say, I'm going to give this care to 15 of them. Sorry, not your lucky day to the other five. That mental preparation is something that I don't know if you can ever be prepared for. Uh, but uh, from a non-medical perspective, I, from a disaster management, we need to be able to quickly ramp up PPEs so that the viral load on the doctor be minimized so you're not losing more soldiers. I think uh, me- from the medical training, not so much, but maybe mental health training and uh, breaks for, for these frontline doctors because you don't need super specialists at this. Some countries, they're even promoting fourth-year and fifth-year medical students to go and to fight. And, and that's, that's how this is. They can be quickly... Tra- so the mental strength of the doctors, I think, are going to play a role. And uh, how do you quickly get somebody like, like how now Dyson is manufacturing ventilators, and Zara is manufacturing masks. That's, that's such a brilliant... Somebody's doing that. So I think that legislation needs to be in. Medical training, not so much, at least from what we... Thank you so much for the comprehensive answer. We, Andrew has just asked about uh, if we were to go, like, for example, if the UK were to do the path of herd immunity, is there a way to know that we have established immunity to COVID-19? For example, there are a number of news articles that have been getting out coming out of people getting reinfected? Like, how do we know we've actually got to that point if we were to go down that path? So herd immunity is a risk. So let's make no bones about it. It is a risk because we don't know the re- rate of... One of the ways that... One of the ways it's done is to measure antibody in your body. So when you're looking for immunity, you're not viral like what they're doing right now for COVID testing, which is to take a swab out of your nose and amplify the virus. So that's the PCR. So that's how it's 
test it. The other way to test it is to just draw blood and look at the antibodies for this virus. Uh, if you can quickly ramp up studies to show, take people who have already been infected, take their antibodies, do a mean, say that over a period of six or eight weeks or 10, uh, they don't get reinfected. So which means that you have, so whether that number is two weeks, 10 weeks, one year, don't, and because it's an ongoing. So that's a way to do it is quickly test antibodies, try and come up with a mean. There will be outliers. But let's say if we get 80% of the population has an antibody for about four months, three months, six months, and you know that herd immunity is just work and you need to focus on uh, taking care of the really people, uh, people who get really sick, uh, and that's where your health can eat. So that's the way to do it is to pick up antibodies and see for maximum number of people how long do they have. Thank Am you. Am too technical? No, uh, I'm sure it's a little bit beyond me, but I did understand the basic idea at least. Thank you. Um, Nancy wanted to ask, what is the realistic time frame generally needed to test a vaccine to establish its effectiveness? How long is generally needed to then produce it? So, so these are strange times. So when we test vaccine, the golden principle is to do no harm. That's the Hippocrates oath. So if you're going to, the vaccine is going to be harmful in one out of 100,000. It's very unlikely it's going pass test. So developing a vaccine is a typically a three, four month process. But what takes time is test it on multiple subsets to see if anybody falling allergic to it. The antibodies come in only for two weeks. Point the vaccine to be sustained. You can't vaccinate somebody every two or four weeks. And it's the testing part that takes time. But now with all the uh, times as strangers that we are in right now, I think somewhere the safety of the vaccines are going to get affected. Developing the vaccine is a problem. The problem is going to be to be able to test and see if the vaccine that we give does have sustained antibodies uh, the person we are giving to, and the antibodies don't kill him, and the vaccine doesn't kill him. Again, that's going to become a political call. Say that, okay, we tested on 10,000 people. Are we good to go? Or do we need to do stage one, stage two, stage three clinical trials, test it on maximum of people? Typically, it's about 12, 18 months. So the vaccines that people are talking about in the news right now, they might actually be very high-risk vaccines. Is that correct? We don't know. So it has to be tested on actual humans. Uh, there will be testing on mice and that, but it has to be tested on. Typically, it's a 12-18-month process, but uh, are we willing to forgive something and say that, okay, let's not go for 100%. Let's agree that if it serves 80 90 fine. But because now that here, tickle question, if most people are just going to get the virus and and pass it on to somebody else. Do you want to give them an untested, unproven vaccine by cutting down? I mean, if this was a much more serious issue and if everybody who's infected, 50, 60% of people are going to die, then that question may have an easier answer. But here, if I'm going to ask you, hey, Spencer, yeah, I might get the vaccine. I have a 5% chance that I will die of it. I have a 10% chance I'd be in the hospital, but otherwise I'm going to get it and go. Should I then take a vaccine, which I don't know if it's tested for humans, I don't know if it is. This is going to throw up a lot of ethical questions. That was part one of our discussion with Wasim. For part two, look on whatever podcast provider you use. This has been Nancy and Spencer on Founders Voyage Weekly Podcast. Our speaker each week can be reached through our Discord server. 
Our intro and outro music is from the song Something for Nothing by Reverend Peyton's Big Damn Band. We'll be back again next week for another episode. Until then, have a great day and continue your voyage.